Well, I want to begin our time by asking a few questions. What was the greatest temptation that you faced this week? As you look back over the course of this week, what was the greatest temptation spiritually that you faced over the course of your week? Was it been filing your taxes maybe to be dishonest and falsely claim more than you should? Was it perhaps a temptation to lie to your parents about schoolwork so that you wouldn't get in trouble? Was it a temptation to look at internet pornography and to indulge evil lusts and desires of the mind? Were you tempted to say something sinful or unkind to your spouse or to someone else in your family? Perhaps you were tempted to speak critically of someone. What temptations might you and I face in the coming weeks? Questions like these remind us of the fact that the Christian life is a war. Every day of every week, we're going to face battles. and They're inevitable. Some days may involve more than one. Others may involve multiple. The beauty of the Christian life is that God knows and understands our battleground. And he didn't leave us on our own wage war. Not only gives us the specific weapons to use to engage in battle with temptation, but he does something even more amazing. He ensures victory to everyone who trusts in him. Do you want to know how to apply his victory over temptation to your life? I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. And we're going to continue our study of chapter 1. So far we've studied the life and critical ministry of John the Baptist who served as a forerunner of Christ. And then we studied the baptism of Jesus. We considered its significance and what active roles Trinity fulfilled, why they're important for us to understand. Today we'll study the event that takes place directly after Christ's baptism. Jesus would be led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Let's read Mark chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, which will be the focus of our study. It says this, starting in verse 12 in the NES, Immediately the Spirit impelled him, Jesus, to go out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts. And the angels were ministering to him. That's it. Short little passage. And the title of our message is Living in His, Vis- in His Victory. And we're going to look at five facets of Christ's temptation and how you can apply His victory to your walk. How Christ faced temptation serves as the ultimate example for us. The significance of His victory is what also enables us to have victory over Temptation, And that comes through the enabling power and ministry of the Holy Spirit that we receive when we trust in Christ and the power of Christ through the gospel. Right? We have the indwelling spirit. 
And as we're going to see, whatever temptation you and I faced last week or whatever temptation that we'll face next week can be confronted by our application of this account. These are in your notes, but the first facet of this account is the timing of Christ's temptation, which will have us focus on the very beginning of verse 12. Our verse begins with the word immediately, which can be translated at once. And there's an urgency. This word was used earlier in verse 10, and it's used repeatedly throughout the Gospel of Mark. And I shared this intro some 40 plus times. You may recall a couple of weeks ago that I said that this is one of the ways that I hope that the Gospel of Mark blesses our church as we see and notice, take notice of the urgency with which Christ ministered. Christ's ministry was not based on convenience. But it was based on urgency. And there was a temporal timeline that could not afford procrastination. Jesus was ministering a running clock. And the same is true for us. The psalmist teaches us, right, to number our days. Ephesians 5 calls us to make the most of the time because the days are indeed evil. Here the Holy Spirit, we are told, leads Jesus immediately to confront Satan in the wilderness. And the haste and immediacy of the temptation on the heels of the baptism creates a sense of imminence, fervency for us. There's no time to linger in the glory of baptism. Without a moment to catch his breath, Jesus begins his ministry by tracking down Satan. Yes, he was tracking down Satan. A divine plan was being wrought out through this confrontation. It wasn't chance or coincidence that Jesus just happened to meet Satan and, and, and then be tempted. Neither is it true to say that the devil arranged the temptation. Christ's temptation here is a fulfilling of a divine plan purpose. Jesus went into the wilderness under the guidance of the Holy Spirit to find the devil. It is a popular fallacy that the enemy drove Christ into a corner and tempted him. The whole divine story reveals the facts that are actually quite otherwise. Jesus, the perfect man, led by the Spirit, or as Mark in his own characteristic and forceful way expresses it, driven by the Spirit, goes out into the wilderness and compels Satan to stand out in the clear from all secondary causes and to enter into direct combat. One theologian that I read this week shared a personal conviction, and he said this, quote, that if the devil could have escaped that day, he would have done so, end quote. And he goes on to say, this is not the devil's method. He always tries to put something between himself and a man he would tempt. He hides his own personality wherever possible. And we see an example of this even going back to the fall in the garden, right? He didn't just show up in his person. He came in the form of, of a serpent. Asking who he was. He goes on to say to our first parents, Adam and Eve, Satan did not suggest that they should serve him, but they should please themselves. So Jesus dragged him from behind everything and put him in front that for once, not through the subtlety of second cause, but directly, he might do his worst against a pure soul, end quote. This is the Lord's open invitation from Jesus Christ to say, give me your best shot. 
Satan, I am dragging you out, and you give me your best shot. This is an aggressive move on God's part that needs to be featured. Perhaps, like many others, you've always thought that Satan was the aggressor. That is not the case here. This is Jesus dragging Satan into the light and calling him out. I think understanding the Holy Spirit's assistance will help provide some clarity. Our verse continues, and it says, Immediately the Spirit impelled Jesus. Now look in your Bible, by the verb impelled, does anyone have a translation where there's a little asterisk uh, right by the word impelled? And and that's there for a reason, and I want to help you. As translators, in the original Greek, this is in the present tense, but they would put this asterisk next there because it only would make sense if you put it in the past tense. Why? Because it's an event that's already occurred. So they go ahead and put a little asterisk. But really, this is in the present tense. ESV uses the word drove. And really, the most literal way to translate it would be is driving. So it could be rendered immediately the Spirit is driving him to go into the wilderness. Yet even this translation gives an impression that Jesus may have been going out against his will, which isn't the case. Jesus in his humanity was working with or in congruency with the Holy Spirit. And you may recall when Jesus was baptized, when we uh, viewed it in the previous passage, that at his baptism, the Holy Spirit descended into Jesus. And this is the best way to understand what the Greek is saying in that verse. At Jesus' baptism, his humanity was completely filled with the Holy Spirit so that he could be led and assisted by the Spirit. Now we need to have a a mini theology lesson here, so I need you to dial in with me, okay, for the next few minutes. We're going to talk about something that's very significant. It's the kenosis, and why it's important to understand that Jesus, though he was fully God, relied upon the assistance of the Holy Spirit. And the Greek word kenosis means emptying, and it comes from a Greek verb, Kenoo, which is actually present in Philippians 2.7. I invite you to turn to Philippians chapter 2, verses 5-7 through 7 that we'll look at, which is commonly referred to as the kenosis passage. And here the Apostle Paul is using Jesus as the ultimate example of servanthood. And this is good for us to grasp because the theme of the Gospel of Mark is Christ as the suffering servant. So this is what it says beginning in verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Stop for a moment. Right away, the Lord Jesus Christ is sympathetic to our finite understanding that when you try to explain, and you, some of you experience this even in your evangelism, when you go out and you try to explain that Jesus was fully human and that he was fully God. Raise your hand if you've had, you've had that experience, right? We, we, it's, it's, it's hard to grasp. And Jesus even shares in this verse that he understands that it's hard to get your mind around that. Sympathetic. Verse 7. But he emptied himself. This is this is Kano'o right here. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. 
in the years 1860 to 1880, there were German theologians who began to popularize a theory called the kenosis theory. According to this theory, they claim that when Christ emptied himself in this passage, that he emptied himself of some of his divine attributes, such as his omniscience, his all-knowingness, right? Um, His omnipresence, his omnipotence while he was on earth. This was viewed as a voluntary self-limitation on Christ's part in which he carried out in order to fulfill his work of redemption. Following some words from Wayne Grudem to understand what these theologians were attempting to do. And again, I want to emphasize that this was and continues to be a theoretical proposal. We need to look at the scriptures to find out what this passage, what this passage and other New Testament passages teach. For the sake of time and efficiency, I want to read what systematic theologian Wayne Grudem writes in response. And he begins with the question, Does Philippians 2.7 teach that Christ emptied himself of some of his divine attributes? And does the rest of the New Testament confirm this? The evidence of Scripture points to a negative answer to both questions. We must first realize that no recognized teacher in the first 1800 years of church history, including those who were native speakers of Greek, thought that emptied himself, end quote, in Philippians 2.7, meant that the Son of God gave up some of his divine attributes. Second, we must recognize that the text does not say that Christ, quote, emptied himself of some of his powers, end quote, or emptied himself of divine attributes or anything like that. Third, the text does describe what Jesus did in this emptying. He did not do it by giving up any of his attributes, but rather taking the form of a servant. That is by coming to live as a man and, quote, being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, death on the cross. Quoting Philippians 2.8. Thus, the context itself interprets this emptying as equivalent to humbling himself and taking a lowly status and position. Emptying includes a change of role and status, not essential attributes or nature. This is so important to understand from a theological perspective because there's other doctrines that are contingent on a correct understanding of the kenosis. One of them is the doctrine of immutability. And what the doctrine of immutability says, that God cannot change or mutate. Okay? It's impossible for God to change or to mutate when it comes to the essence of who he is, his attributes, and his nature. Thus, doctrine of immutability. Mutation, change, impossible immutability. Picture the President of the United States volunteering to serve in a soup kitchen in Washington, D.C. during his time in office. This wouldn't change the President's Uh, human attributes or characteristics, nor his human nature. His willingness, check this out, his willingness to choose to serve this way would change his role and status if he was willingly to choose to embrace such a role as a servant in the kitchen, even if it was only for a temporary time. In significantly greater measure, 
Same is true of Christ when he took the role of a bondservant. He emptied himself of divine privilege and status as the second member of the Trinity, and he embraced his role as a suffering servant. So when we're talking about the true kenosis, we're talking about Christ's change in role and status, not change in deity or attributes or nature. This is so important to understand because it helps us understand why it is baptism the Holy Spirit descended into his humanity. It also helps us see the submission in his humanity to be spirit-led, and this serves as a model for us. If the Lord Jesus Christ was led by the Holy Spirit in his humanity in order to have victory over temptations that he faced, how much more do we need to be led by the Spirit to overcome the temptations that we face? So often... We can yield to temptation because we attempt to do battle in the weakness of our flesh rather than in the strength of the Spirit. Only when we wage war in the Spirit's strength can we address the hypocrisy of our deceptive human hearts that make us so vulnerable to temptation. What does functioning in the Spirit's strength look like practically? First, it begins with a recognition at the heart level of just how vulnerable our flesh is to temptation. You and I need to recognize the propensity of our own hearts to drive us towards deception and towards hypocrisy. We need to see that first. Romans 12.9 even says, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor, this word can actually be hate, or loathe what is evil, cling what is good. You know, this is really a good picture of spiritual growth in the life of, of a Christian. When we become more like God, we learn to hate what he hates. We learn to love what he loves. And so we need to see this, and I appreciate this verse. This, this verse has ministered to me and helped me. In fact, I have a little memory key uh, that, that helps me here. I'll give you the cliff notes on it. It's called abhor and adore. And that's when an evil thought comes into my mind, a sinful thought um, or, or, or a temptation, an external temptation. The, the, the first place that my mind has gone uh, as of late is to abhor and, and to hate it. And to hate it. And then love what God loves. Love the truth that God has for us. And we'll talk more about what that means. Second, it means clinging to the Lord in prayer and asking, just as the Lord Jesus Christ instructed us in Matthew 6.13. He said, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Author Andrew Murray wrote this, Many Christians backslide. They are unable to stand against the temptations of the world or of their old nature. They strive to do their best to fight against sin and to serve God in their own strength. They have never really grasped the secret. The Lord Jesus will every day from heaven continue his work in me. But on one condition, the soul must give him time each day to impart his love and grace. Time alone with the Lord Jesus each day is the indispensable condition of growth and power. Powerful. Consider that reality. It's our dependence. We're leaning on him. We're trusting him. Trusting him. 
Third, it means clinging to the scripture when facing the battle of temptation. And the Lord models this for us when, in, not in Mark's account, but in Matthew and Luke, the, the, the significance of being armed with scripture when facing temptation. And it's also emphasized in Ephesians 6, 10 and following, which is the place where God calls us to put on the full armor of God. I wish time would allow us to study that entire passage right now, but let's at least read it. If you want to turn there, Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10, the apostle Paul writes, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And that is an awesome verse right there. (laughs) Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of, of your might? Of your flesh? No. Be strong in the strength of his might. Verse 11, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. How do we do this? What does this look like practically? Paul continues. Jump down to verse 14. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate righteousness. Again, it's, it's the truth and the, the breastplate, which protects the heart, right? It's, it's, it's clinging to that righteousness that we have in Christ. We talked about this in our care group uh, this week. Um, just the man that purifies himself as, as we look to Christ's righteousness. It's not a self-righteousness. It's God's righteousness. And as a result of his work in us and through us, we, we cling to that. It's our breastplate. Having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, which will help you to be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. What's he saying there? The gospel is what enables you to fight. It's what gave you the power. It is the shield of faith that extinguishes those temptations, those fiery darts the enemy is going to throw our way. And take the helmet of salvation right, on our head to understand what this means. It's in our mind. We understand what true salvation looks like. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. These, my friends, are the Christian's weapons of mass destruction right here. These are what God wants us to be armed with when it comes to overcoming temptation. Practically, they help us function the Spirit's strength. If you've never had the opportunity to study this passage, or maybe it's been a long time since you've focused on it, I was even thinking about this would be a really cool retreat theme to go through the believer's armor, but I don't know if that's been done in the past. But you'll be blessed immensely to spend some time studying it, but we need to move on. The second facet of Christ's temptation, which can help us apply his victory to our lives, is the place of Christ's temptation. Verse 12 finishes by revealing the place where the battle occurs. It says, immediately the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. The fact that Jesus, who is often referred to as the second Adam, opted for this environment deserves special attention. Certainly there's a contrast between the ideal conditions of the Garden of Eden, 
Adam and Eve found themselves in where they were tempted, and the barren wilderness where Jesus was tempted. In some ways, this is like Jesus giving Satan home field advantage, saying, all right, just me and you, me and you, one-on-one. The fact that Jesus did this should encourage us in the middle of wilderness with nothing. Adam and Eve were surrounded by a serene environment with an abundance of food, beautiful, fruitful atmosphere. They lacked nothing at all, right? They had the fellowship of God and of each other, even the company of, of tame animals that were in the garden. And the Lord Jesus Christ entered the wilderness led only by the Holy Spirit. He had no food. No access to other people. Our next verse shared that his company was with wild beasts. And this really provided Satan with a blank slate to work with when tempting Jesus. And it also helps us understand the contrast and perhaps the enticement that Satan hoped the temptations would elicit. Both ends of the spectrum are covered here. In the wilderness, the desert wilderness which was also a common place for Israel. The Israelites' hearts were tempted on a regular basis, to recall. is one end of the spectrum to the, the, the other end of the, the spectrum where Satan is going to tempt the Lord Jesus Christ with all the earthly kingdoms and all the, the glory of the earthly kingdoms, which depicts in not an exact way, but in a similar vein, all the, the fruitfulness and all the the things that Adam and Eve had when they suffered their temptation. The takeaway for us when it comes to applying Christ's victory to our lives is this. It's not about external matters that the enemy may use to tempt us, but it's about internal matters of the heart as we trust God to lead us, to guide us, and to provide for us. Fill our hearts, find internal pleasure in our obedience and worship of the Lord rather than the external passing pleasures and temptations of this world. And this is exactly why it's written in 1 John 2, 15, not to love the world, nor the temporal, fleeting, unfulfilling things. Why? Because they'll hijack our love for God and for other people. Spiritually, they're dead ends. They obstruct our vision. And just like sin, they keep us from seeing, from seeing who God truly is. He wants us to find our complete joy and contentment in Him. There's a third facet of Christ's temptation, which is the duration of His temptation. Look at the beginning of verse 13. It says, And He was in the wilderness 40 days. Important for us to note is that this wasn't the first encounter that Jesus had with temptations from Satan. Here's how one commentator expresses it. To think of the tempting of Jesus as beginning and being exhausted in this special season in the wilderness is to misunderstand utterly the years at Nazareth and the full meaning of the wilderness experience. During the preceding 30 years, he had been unceasingly victorious. At his baptism, the opened heavens, the descending dove, the divine voice are each and all significant of the perfections of the 30 years. That is, of the absolute victory Jesus had won 
over all the attacks of the enemy. The Lord had met and triumphed over all the temptations incidental to private life. He is now entering upon three years of public ministry, and he meets his foe head on. I appreciated this perspective because it allows us to see the full picture of the suffering servant. And I talked about this before, that, that his suffering started when he stepped out of heaven, right? When, when he came to this earth, to a fallen earth, that, that launched the beginning of his suffering. He would have suffered temptation before and after this event as well. And if you should need another example of that, you can go to the Garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane before Jesus goes to the cross, which is one such example. But even that experience only happened for a day. Versus 40 uninterrupted consecutive days of temptation. It's been suggested that the 40-day trial reflects God's deliverance of his people. The Lord delivered Noah and his family in the ark after it rained for 40 days and nights. Israel was in the wilderness 40 years in Deuteronomy 8.2. Moses was on Mount Sinai 40 days and nights in Exodus 34.28. Elijah was led for 40 days and nights to Mount Horeb in 1 Kings 19.8. In each instance, 40 days was the duration of time which allowed God to display his faithfulness and promise of deliverance. So here our hearts can be encouraged by Christ's victory and God's faithfulness to us when we face temptation for any period of time. Whether it's four days, 40 days, 400 days, it doesn't matter. God's faithfulness and spirit can help us to victory over any duration. God's faithfulness is expressed perfectly in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, a verse that's well known by, by many in this room. No temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man. Right? But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. But with each temptation, he'll provide the way of escape so that you'll be able to endure it. And we live in the wilderness of worldliness in Southern California. And there are things that are around us in our culture that are relentless in terms of temptation. God in his faithfulness provides with every temptation the grace to endure it and the way of escape. When you think about the temptation that you faced last week, did you abhor it or did you adore it? Because if you abhorred it, you know what happened? You looked for the way of escape. You looked for the avenue that the Lord provides. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about that a little bit later on. We're studying five facets of Christ's temptation and how the Lord would have us apply his victory to our walks. And we've studied three of them so far. The timing, the place, and duration of Christ's temptation. Now the fourth facet is the agent of Christ's temptation. Look at the middle of verse 13. And he, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. Satan is the personal name of the head of demons and all demonic activity. And the Bible provides numerous names and descriptions such as the prince of the power of the air, the god of this world, Lucifer, the accuser of the brethren, a great adversary, the great dragon, and the serpent of old, father of lies. For our purposes today, we could even call him the great tempter. The emphasis here is upon the fact that in the wilderness experience, Jesus came face to face with him. There are many negative things to say about Satan 
but it shouldn't negate the fact that he is very effective at what he does. He is the master sower of disordered truths and deception. And if you have, if there's a part of you within you, within that, that doubts the significance of Satan's resume, just think about how many times that you may have succumbed to the same temptation. He's a master. He is a master of deception. Maybe even after swearing to yourself that you were never going to fall again. Think about it. And the the seeds of the deceiver are sown deep within the walls of our heart and our depravity. It's James 1, 3. God does not tempt, right? Nor can he be tempted. Nor does he tempt anyone, excuse me. Jesus is being tempted. He is. He's the great tempter. So what temptations would the agent of Christ's temptation use against Christ? Mark's account doesn't provide any of the details, but Matthew 4 and Luke 4 each list three recorded temptations for us. And I say recorded temptations because they were numerous and other temptations took place over the 40-day span that went unrecorded. Whenever Satan tempts someone, his temptations fall into one of three categories. I want to give you three words that, that start with the letter A that aren't in your notes. You can jot these down and define them by using three terms. Number one, appetite. Number two, attraction. And number three, ambition. And this was true with Adam and Eve's threefold temptation in the garden as Satan used a piece of fruit to first tempt their physical appetite, then entice them with the attraction of knowledge of good and evil. And he also appealed to their ambition when saying that God didn't want them to become like him. These words are also reflected in the New Testament in the arena of our loss. In 1 John 2.16, lust of the flesh, appetite. The lust of the eyes, attraction. The lust and the boastful pride of life, ambition. When Satan tempts Jesus, these three recorded temptations reflect each of these categories. Then the first recorded temptation after Jesus had just fasted for 40 days and nights and was very hungry, Satan came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Satan appeals to his physical appetite. By the way, there are other appetites. Appetites for for knowledge, appetites for uh, relationship, appetites for other things. This temptation is directed at Christ's appetite and was designed to tempt Jesus to disregard the Father's divine plan. How so? Certainly there's nothing sinful about eating bread if you're hungry. That's, That's not the point here. Christ is experiencing hunger Because it was a part of the divine program. And he was led by the spirit in the wilderness and taken to a place of physical hunger. And that hunger was a necessary process in the economy of God. Circumstance within his will. Small and unimportant as this may appear, if Satan could only get Jesus to minister to his physical need and satisfy his hunger by using a divinely bestowed power this act of personal choice would go against the divine plan preventing it fulfillment. It would call into question Christ's loyalty to the will of the Father. The second way the agent of 
Christ's temptation, tried to entice the Lord to sin, was by appealing to ambition. Satan took him to uh, the holy city and had Jesus stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Here the enemy tries to create out within Jesus' mind as it relates to the Father's care for him. He's trying to strike at ambition and is trying to get Jesus to test that out and say, does the Father really care about you? Jesus, does he really care? If you were to throw yourself down right now, would he send help? Trying to create that doubt. Sowing the seeds. Like all temptations of ambition, Satan's goal is to get someone to function in a spirit of independence so they won't rely on God's will. The third way the agent of Christ's temptation tried to entice the Lord to sin was by using attraction. Satan took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Here, Satan, as one commentator states, made to pass before the vision of Christ a gorgeous and magnificent scene. He revealed to him the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them, not merely the few and imperfect kingdoms of Palestine, but all the kingdoms of the world, the great Roman Empire, Greece, Pergamus, Bithynia, the Bosphorus, Syria, Pontus, Judea, and Egypt, all the known kingdoms of the world, including the great unexplored lands with their thousand nations, tribes what would the attraction of this temptation be satan was trying to attract jesus away from his mission and divine plan of redemption in essence this is what satan is saying jesus you don't need to go to the cross you don't need to be here suffering forget about being betrayed Forget about being scourged. Forget about being nailed to the cross, bleeding to death, dying of suffocation. Jesus, forget about Father turning his back on you. You don't have to face any of that. In fact, it's just me and you, Jesus. Right here, no one else knows. It's just us out here. All you have to do, just one time, you can avoid all that. And I have jurisdiction because I've been given reign as the prince of the power of this world and of the air over these kingdoms. And I will give everything to you if you will do just one thing for me. Just for a moment. Bend down and praise me. It's my stomach sick. Even think about the reality of the request that Satan just made, how perverted and twisted. In the end, Satan needed Christ to sin so that Christ could not be sinless Savior. A tongue twister. Truly. Satan needed Christ to sin so Christ could not be the sinless Savior. 
It would no longer be the spotless Lamb of God. It would no longer be the one to share his imputed righteousness with another because his righteousness would now be tainted. Even if this one time, this one time, we know the pain. We know the pain that, that Christ experienced in the Garden of Gethsemane as he sweat drops of blood, as he considered the reality that he would experience something that he had never experienced before in his life, that he was going to be forsaken. And he was going to have broken fellowship with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And it tore his heart to pieces. And here, Satan is making that request. How would Christ respond? Well, the fifth and final facet is perhaps the most significant. It is the victory of Christ's temptation. All the preceding facets of Christ can be summarized this way. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, called out Satan, and then was tempted by Satan. Jesus spent 40 consecutive days during which the, Spirit, the Holy Spirit led him and was with him throughout the entire process. Not in his deity did Christ resist, but in his perfect manhood, being led by the indwelling spirit. One theologian shared, manhood is never able to successfully resist temptations of the devil, except when fulfilling a first divine intention, that namely of depending upon God and thus being guided by the spirit of God. Thus the man Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness and was led by the spirit through all the process of his victory over temptation. And the way for us to understand Christ's victory, I think, in a significant fashion, is to contrast the facts of what Adam experienced in the garden and what Christ experienced Satan in the wilderness. Satan challenged the first Adam. The second Adam challenged Satan. Satan ruined the first Adam. The last Adam spoiled Satan. The first Adam involved the race in his defeat. The last Adam included the race in his victory. The first Adam stood as the head of the race and falling, dragged the race down with him. The last Adam stood as the head of the new race and being victorious, lifted that race with him. This is not a picture of the last Adam doing merely what the first Adam did going into a place of a passive life, and then when temptation came, trying to resist it. The second Adam not only had to resist temptation when it assailed him for his own sake, but he did also take a hold of Satan and defeated him and punished him for the wrong that he did in the ruin of the first Adam. And all God's people said, amen, amen, and ragdolled him and, 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 and laid hold of Satan and was making a statement as he was coming to fulfill his plan of redemption. How did Jesus have such a defining victory over Satan's temptation? And how can we apply his victory to our lives as believers? Well, there are two factors that we need to take special note of. Factor number one, Jesus completely and continually relied upon the Holy Spirit to lead him throughout his earthly ministry. We've spoken about this at length already. And if you're a thinker, Someone might ask, probably someone like Andy Lai, because he's theologically, how was he led before his baptism? 
for those first 30 years when Satan came to tempt him. And I thought about this for a long time. Not very long, because I, I knew that the Spirit still led him. In the same way that the Spirit led Old Testament saints, that when there were certain occasions that the Spirit came upon people and empowered them to prevail. And this is what's important. Christ needed to live his life in, in the fullness of his humanity, right? To, to be that perfect sacrifice. And he needed to be Spirit-led because he's modeling the life for us. And at the Lord's baptism, he was indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And when he was baptized, this initiated in his humanity, being led by the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit, as is the case for all New Testament believers in the church age. And either way, the application is the same for us. We must continually rely on the strength of the Holy Spirit to overcome temptation. We've already covered what this looks like when we featured the importance of putting on the full armor of God. Factor number two, Jesus armed himself with the word and was ready to wield it whenever temptation came. When Satan appealed to appetite by tempting Christ to command stones to turn, in, to turn them into bread, Jesus responded with Deuteronomy 8.3 and said, It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. When Satan appealed to ambition by tempting Christ to doubt the Father's care and that Jesus should test the Father to see if he really would take care of him by casting himself down off the temple mount, Jesus responded with Deuteronomy 6.16 and said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And finally, Satan appealed to attraction, attempting Jesus with all the earthly kingdoms that that Satan influenced, promised to give them to Jesus if Jesus would simply bow down one time to discreetly worship him. That was, that was, the, last, was the, the last in this occurrence in the wilderness. And we see what accord it strikes the Lord. He says, go, Satan. Get out of here. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and serve him only. We don't have this in Mark's account today, but this isn't from Matthew's account. In the very next verse in Matthew, says this, then the devil left him. And I know we're not allowed to add to Scripture, but if I could add to, to, to that verse, I would say, then the devil left him with his tail between his legs. Right? He, he got, he, 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 he dealt with the pure soul of the Lord Jesus Christ and everything that he tried to bring for 40 consecutive days and relentless temptation was shut down. If Jesus secured his victory over Satan's temptations, being led by the Spirit and responding to each temptation with a, revert, with a verse to refute it, how might we apply his victory to our own walks? Seems pretty straightforward, doesn't it? And I know I've shared this before. And this is me talking to myself as well as everyone who can hear the sound of my voice. Are you studying God's word and saturating your heart and mind with the scriptures? Are you arming yourself 
with the word of God so that you can be prepared to face your next temptation? What verses address the temptation that you dealt with? When, when you look back on your week, what verse would, would God have you wield to pull out and to cut that temptation down? There is a verse. There is a verse. One of two things will happen. We will either be led by the Spirit and armed with the Word, and this will give us victory over temptation, or we'll be led by the flesh, disarmed without the Word, have us yield to temptation. There is no, there is no middle ground. Right? We know this. Right? And so uh, are we, we have to be a church that is arming ourselves. We have to, to know the Word, and specifically, we have to have verses in mind. In Philippians 2.9, I shared, or excuse me, uh, Romans 12.9, I shared earlier is a verse that's really blessed me immensely. It's, it's just right there. I keep it right here because I need to abhor what is evil. And I need to cling to what is good. I need to cling to the righteousness of Christ, not the self-righteousness of Pastor John. Holy, holy man. No, I need to cling. I need, I need Christ's righteousness. And I need to honor him with my life, with what he's done for me. I need to cling to it. What verse will help you get there? What will you grab a hold of? Philippians 4.8, finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is pure, well, think about such things. Think about such things. You know, I, I shared earlier, and I... 1 Corinthians 10.13, one of my favorite verses in all scripture. It crushed me when I first understood it. I think I shared this in the past. Because the Lord allowed me to see at the heart of all temptation, no temptation has overtaken you, such is common to man. It's common for us to be tempted. But at the heart of that verse is God is faithful. He is faithful. Who won't allow me to be tempted beyond that which I'm able to endure. But he does what? He, he will provide the way of escape. He'll provide the way of escape. And I'm convinced under my personal conviction that the way of the escape is the same for every Christian on the planet. It's the same. Do you know what it is? It's walking in the strength of the Holy Spirit. And it's having a verse to pull out of your holster and to, or sword, the sword of the Spirit, and to cut that temptation down. I believe it. I believe it. Martin Luther said, all the cunning of the devil is exercised in trying to tear us away from the word. What a profound and true statement that is. All of, all of temptation is driving us away from the word. So as it relates to temptations that you and I will face, this next week, I trust that the five facets of Christ's temptation will guide you, guide me to apply his victory to our walks. I want to conclude. Have you listened to what Puritan writer John Gibbon shares? He wrote this. What methods should a Christian use in the battle of spiritual warfare to have victory over the enemy and vanquish him? Will you let your silly lust abuse you and become a traitor to your own soul? Will you allow your passion to rise in arms 
and grow unruly? Look to Scripture for support. If the love of God's commands will not restrain you, let the terrors and the thunders of his threats persuade you. Draw the curtain of your own heart wide open and show it God's majesty and ask if it realizes that he is looking in. Tell your heart again and again that God will not be mocked. Seek to draw the stream of your lust to repentance. If it is vainglory and the applause of men, think how ridiculous it would be for a criminal to please himself in the esteem of his fellow prisoners and forget how guilty he is before the judge. If these means do not help, fall instantly to prayer. Throw yourself at his feet. Tell him you will not rise until he has given you a token for good. Perhaps sometimes you might add fasting with your prayer. And when you have done this, rise up and buckle on the shield of faith. Clothe your soul with a heroic confidence in the power and faithfulness of your God. And in the name and majesty of the Lord of hosts, wage war against your lusts. Gracious Father, we, my heart's convicted, and I know that you see all and you know all. You know that that's shared in humility, not in pride. And Father, we just, all of us, all of us need you. And perhaps the most significant thing that I could pray right now is that you gave us victory in our salvation so that we could have victory in our sanctification. And you want us to see that. And I pray, Father, if there's someone here today who's just overcome by temptation every day, all day, throughout the day, that they would realize that in their own flesh they cannot wage war. They cannot do anything. Apart from you, they can do nothing. And that they would see the need that all of us who have trusted in Christ have seen. That you're a holy God, and we are but dust. We are brave sinners, and our hearts are deceptively wicked. wicked. We needed Christ to save us. We needed to trust in him by faith and to come to him in repentance. And by doing so, you have given us the ultimate victory. We have salvation in him. We have a a promised eternity with you, the result. But we also now have the enabling power and ministry of the Holy Spirit to overcome any and all temptation. And that if we trust in you, you will help us to have victory. I pray, Father, that you would allow us to be a church that clings to the reality of the gospel and what it means for our lives. 
And I also pray, Father, that if there's someone here today that has never responded in faith, that today would be the day of salvation, that they would see their desperate need for you and that they would realize your holiness, that they would confess their sinfulness, they would see their need for Christ and that they would cry out to him in faith and repentance today. And that you can give them the same enabling spirit that you've given those of us who have already entrusted ourselves to you. Would you help us now to continue to walk in the strength and the might of your spirit? Would you draw us to your word and allow our hearts to pursue you and to be armed with the spiritual armor that you would have us put on for the war? Father, you do promise us eternal rest, that war is taking place only on this side of the cross. That when we step into your presence, that we'll be able to need rest. Rest. Well, until that point in time, pray, Father, that you would help us to fight the good fight of faith. Help us to persevere. Help us to cling to you, to cling to your word, to be prayerful every single way so that we can glorify Christ in the name of his victory. We ask this in his precious name. Amen.